Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now here are your hosts, Nick and Jake. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Mick. Welcome to Season 6 of the RayWendlick.com podcast. You'll all be delighted to hear that Jake is back with us for another season, alongside six brand new panellists, each one representing a different platform. We have developers from iOS, Android and Unity, to name but a few. But to kick the season off, we're joined by Andrew Madsen, friend of the show and full-time OS X developer. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Thanks, I'm happy to be here. Now, Andrew, it's customary on the show to let our guest have the first slot, so your 20 minutes starts now. Thanks, Mick. As Mick said, I'm, I'm an OS X developer. I do that full-time and, and have done for really about the last 10 years I've been doing OS X development seriously, and it's it's something I love doing. Uh, iOS has been great, and I, I've done work there and enjoyed it, but I think OS X is my first love, and so I wanted to talk a little bit today about that, about why I like OS X, talk about some of the advantages uh, of developing for the Mac, and also some um, some of the sort of similarities with iOS. I want I want people to know that if you already know iOS, making the jump to OS X is probably not as hard as you think it is. And then finally, I, I want to talk a little bit about how you can actually share a lot of code between the two. So if you've got an iOS app and you want to do an OS X version, uh, there are ways to, to share a big portion of your code so that you're not rewriting everything for both platforms. And this is something that I kind of I kind of come at from the other direction. So I started doing OS X development and have done uh, mostly OS X development. So I learned iOS, you know, coming from OS X, which is probably not the direction 99% of people go now. They learn iOS first, and then OS X is sort of the second platform. But the truth is, whether you're going one way or the other, these two platforms really just share a lot, a lot in common. Um, iOS is sort of like a like a child of OS X or maybe a sibling at this point, uh, especially when you consider how important they are. But all the stuff you see in iOS sort of either has a counterpart in OS X or is exactly the same. And for this reason, I really uh, I really think you can take a lot of your knowledge on iOS and, and just transfer it directly over. So, for example, this is uh, a simple example, but for example, on iOS, you have UIView on OS X, and we all know about UIView and UIView controller, and on OS X you have NSView and NSWindow controller. I think that's actually a really good example because in general, if you take an iOS class and you replace the UI with an NS, you've got the counterpart on OS X. There are exceptions, of course. There are some things that are missing on iOS that are on OS X and vice versa, but a lot of them have these direct counterparts. So, Andrew, you're talking specifically about UI and about um, UIKit versus AppKit. Um, and those are the biggest differences. A big chunk of the stack is exactly the same, right? Yeah, that's actually a really good point. So uh, to, to simplify things just a little bit, um, you can almost say that all the frameworks other than UIKit and its counterpart on OS X, which is called AppKit, those are the frameworks we use for UI. Other than those, the frameworks are, are all the same. So probably the most important one, of course, is Foundation. That's essentially identical on both platforms. Um, but other frameworks like core data and core audio and uh, core animation and, um, you know, anything with a core in front of it is probably on both platforms. If not identical, uh, very, very similar. Occasionally you find minor differences, but um, mostly these are just exactly the same. Core image in the last iteration, they unified the API for a long time. A lot, there was a lot more available for core image on on OS X and then in iOS 9 and 
in El Capitan, they, they unified the APIs and they're not like exactly the same, but they're very, very close. I think there's just a few minor differences now. So you couldn't do, you could do custom kernels on OS 10 for years and we just got those in iOS 8 or iOS 9. So. Right. And the same is true of, of core audio. Although I think that change was in iOS eight, uh, where on OS 10, you could have, um, I mean, maybe it was iOS nine. I, I sometimes forget now the version history, but for a long time on OS 10, uh, with core audio, you could have custom third party audio units and your application could use those. And, uh, iOS didn't have anything like that. This, this trend is, is one that's actually been going on for years where a lot of the stuff that started out on OS 10 and was sort of more powerful than, you know, the iOS counterpart, things are changing where iOS is, is getting these powerful capabilities like you've just discussed. And actually also the reverse is happening. So on iOS, probably everybody knows UI collection view, which is a really cool and really powerful view with a really powerful API. We've had NS collection view on OS 10 for a long time, for years, but it was really, really wimpy and, and um, limited compared to UI collection view. But then in 10.11 El Capitan, Apple brought all the API from UI collection view over to OS 10 and put it in an S collection view. Yeah, and it seems like, I mean, in just like the last two years, that, that unification has happened a lot. It's That's been really nice for me. Yeah, it, it has been great because I think one of the things that has bothered people who are starting on iOS and going to OS 10 is some of these things that were really easy on on iOS, they find are, are kind of difficult on OS 10. And that's because they're used to all the APIs that make things, you know, make custom UI and all these paradigms they're used to on iOS pretty easy. And then some of them are just missing on OS 10. But with every year and every release, those differences are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Another good example of that is is actually storyboards, which did not exist on OS 10 uh, before, but in 10.11, or sorry, actually 10.10 in Yosemite, uh, Apple brought out storyboards for OS 10, and they work quite similarly to storyboards on iOS. Of course, the UIs are different, right? OS 10 has multiple windows and windows with more content and is all mouse-based and certain UI paradigms that are quite different than iOS. But overall, if you if you know how a storyboard works on iOS, you'll be pretty at home on OS 10. They have segues and child view controllers and, you know, multiple views in one scene and all of that. Uh, this, to me, is evidence that whether or not Apple is actually going to merge the two platforms, they are trying to make it as easy as possible to, to develop for both platforms. So I guess let's talk a little bit more specifically about some of the difficulties that iOS developers do have. Because I know that, I mean, so so people know, um, I worked with you at uh, your company, Mixed and Key, uh, for a couple of years a while back. And you taught me so much that most of what I know about OS ten I learned from you. And so I know kind of, Having started with iOS and then having the experience of moving over to OS X, I can think of some of the things that kind of like struck me as difficult and and awkward. And I know that I'm not the only person that you have helped make have, have taught that too. So can you kind of share with us some of the big some of the big gotchas, some of the things that if if our, our audience who haven't yet touched OS X, they're thinking about it, what they can expect to kind of stumble with a little bit when they get into AppKit. I think the the way to understand these things that make OS 10 sometimes difficult for an iOS developer is to know that OS 10 really has a history that goes back to to Next Step um, that started in 1988 or something, 
and iOS came out, the iOS SDK came out in 2008, and that was sort of Apple's chance to start over and sort of fix mistakes and moder modernize things and whatever. And so there are places where OS X has API that's really not as nice, and it's because it's it's sort of this this legacy thing. And of course, as we've talked about, Apple's trying to improve that. But you do hit into hit into cases where uh, you may be used to something on iOS and you see the 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 you know, the counterpart on OS X, you think, wow, this is really weird. And one of those that comes to mind immediately is if you're trying to do any kind of custom UI. On iOS, if you want to make a button so that it uses an image, uh, you just set, you know, you call set image for state, right? On OS X, you have NS button, which is sort of like UI button, except it doesn't have any kind of image property. If you want it to look completely different with an image, you actually have to subclass it and override draw rect and do that whole thing. So what is that? That's one thing that I never had to do before. I mean, I'd heard of it, but I never actually had to do it. So what does overriding draw rect look like? Well, this is this is true on iOS and OS X, but fundamentally views draw themselves using a, a method called draw rect. And so you can subclass UI view or NS view on either platform, override draw rect, and then use core graphics or uh, you know or other drawing APIs to do any kind of drawing you want. You can use you know draw Bezier paths or images or fill rectangles with color or, or whatever you don't you don't tend to do that a lot on ios unless you're implementing something that is truly you know custom ui but if you just want a button to have an image or you know or have have a view have a background color or something like that there are properties to do those things without having to subclass anything on os 10 it's much more common to actually end up subclassing uh, a system class like ns button or ns view override draw rect and then do your own drawing that it, it's probably not as scary as it sounds but it's more than one line of code like it would be on ios yeah that was like one of the biggest things when i was like how come i can't change like the background color of the view that's and it was like well you need to i mean you can use ca layers if you want to drop down but you still usually end up subclassing it um and that even in that case yeah so i will say for for um just for, for changing the background color of a view i have started making my views layer backed and then and then just setting the layer background color which actually brings us to another difference that's sometimes important which is on iOS UI views all have a, a CA layer backing them in, in other words all views are, are layer backed on OS 10 NS view existed for a long time before core animation came out and so NS views are not necessarily layer backed they can be but it's an optional thing and you actually have to uh, set a property essentially to to make them layer backed. But once you do that, you get sort of the same benefits that UI view gets from being layer backed. And one of those is, of course, you can just set the background color of your CA layer because core animation is essentially the same on iOS and OS X. You know, that's actually a case where it's a little tiny bit harder, but you can essentially do the same thing, the background color in particular. So one of the things that first got me when I dabbled in OS X development was the idea of a cell. And that when you did sort of NS table view, you could either use a view-based table view or a cell-based table view. And I think it runs deeper than that as well. I think you it's used within texts and that kind of stuff. And I'm just wondering if you could explain to people that haven't dabbled in OS X sort of what the idea of a, a cell is, because it's not something that has translated over to iOS. Yeah, this is, this is another... Uh, great thing to talk about. It's something that iOS developers first see, and, and they really, it's, you know, what is this thing, NS cell? Uh, but but this actually dates, again, back to Next, when uh, when Next Step, which, you know, sort of essentially became OS ten when the operating system was running on a computer that might have 32 megabytes of RAM and, you know, I don't know, 25 or 50 megahertz processor. So computers were much slower, 
NSL was essentially a performance optimization. And the way I like to explain NSL is to say that it's like a rubber stamp. So for something like a table view, it's, it, 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 the optimization you get is instead of having one view for each row and column, one cell view, uh, you just use one single cell, and that's used to draw every single row in, in the table, like a stamp. And that way you're not uh, creating and destroying views over and over again. You're not using all the memory that's required to hold a view in, you know, in memory. You're using this really sort of lightweight thing that is called NSL to do your drawing. But the thing is, computers are really fast now, and we have lots of memory. So this performance optimization is not really necessary. Apple has said that NSL is, quote, on its way to deprecation, even though it's not really technically deprecated, and it's actually still ubiquitous. It's used all over in AppKit. NSTableView is a really good example, um, and NSTableView is actually one place where it essentially has been deprecated. In 10.7 Lion, they added uh, what are called view-based table views. These work very much like UI table view on, on iOS does, and they don't use an NS cell at all. And Apple, of course, recommends that if you're writing a new app and using NS table view, you just use view-based table view and you don't even touch the, the cell-based stuff. But the cell-based stuff is actually still there in case you you know for, have some reason to use it. Other than NS table view, where they've done a good job of, of getting rid of it, for some classes, NS cell is, is really just still there and you you can't get around using it a good example of this is is actually ns button that we were just talking about ns button ns buttons all use an ns button cell but it's, it's also a good example of where if you can try to avoid using it so if you're going to if you're going to subclass ns button you don't at, at this point you don't actually have to do anything with an ns button cell you can sort of just disregard it write the code that it would originally be used for the thing that makes this sort of difficult for some classes is that even though NSL started out as just sort of this rubber stamp to optimize drawing, it eventually ended up getting all tangled up with handling user input. And so NSL is actually also used, like there's, a, there's an NS text field cell, for example, that's also used for dealing with keyboard input. And um, NS cells are in, in certain places used for mouse input and, and all of that. So what started out as kind of a cool optimization back in the next days, like in the, in the early 90s probably at this point, is kind of this gross, obsolete thing that sort of gets in your way. And one hopes that Apple is eventually going to get rid of it altogether, but it seems like it might be a while. So I have a quick question about that. I wasn't, I didn't understand that. I know we've talked a little bit about not using, not subclassing NSL, but it, basically what you're saying is if you override drawrect in your NS button class, it's as the, it never even touches the cell. It doesn't use it at all. Yeah. Well, I think it's actually still used. I, I would have to go dig in. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's, it's actually still used for the mouse input stuff. So I think you'd also have okay. override, you know, mouse down and, and, um, but okay. essentially NSL is used in NS buttons draw rect to do, to draw itself. It, it, it it's draw rect essentially calls through to the cell. And but you can just use core graphics right in your NS button, which means and it doesn't, in that case, it wouldn't use NSL's drawing code at all. Is that I try to do that wherever possible. There are some classes where you just really can't completely get away from, get away from it, but hopefully those are uh, the number of those is going down over time. So before we start talking about sharing code between the two platforms, because that's something I do want to get into, because I think that's something that will be really appe really appealing for any iOS developer looking to branch out or maybe somebody starting an you know an OS ten project with with a long term goal of moving it to iOS. One of the other things that sort of a big gotcha 
when you start working with OS ten, especially for me, because it caught me a little bit off guard, was the flip coordinate space. So I don't know if you want to pick up on that before we move on. On OS ten, the coordinates uh, in a view, the coordinates start in, in the bottom left corner, and on iOS, of course, it's the top left. Um, but it actually gets slightly more complicated on OS ten because you can flip the coordinates if you want and make them start in the top left for any given view, and you do that by subclassing NSView and overriding this uh, method called isFlipped. Um, anyway, that's that's really just a small thing. I think it's just sort of something to get used to. As an OS ten developer, bottom left is actually the thing I'm kind of more used to and makes more sense and it matches up with what I learned in uh, you know, in geometry in high school. You know, there's also the argument to be made that you will normally lay out UI from from top to bottom, so iOS is sort of makes more sense. Either way, kind of something to get used to. It's a slightly annoying difference between the two, but it's nothing. Yeah, I mean, Jake and I were talking about this uh, just while we were off air, and if you kind of stick with storyboards and auto layout, it's not really anything that you're ever going to bump into, but sort of in your example where you're saying, you know, override the button if you want to give it an image background, then you can very quickly get caught out when, it, you know, if, you're, if you've got a mindset of laying uh, things out in iOS and the iOS coordinate space, uh, and then doing so in OS 10, and and then sort of when you build and run, that 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 image isn't going to be anywhere where you expect it to be. Yeah, exactly, and it 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 definitely happens, especially if you're kind of switching back and forth between platforms, where your brain has to make this little mental switch between the the two coordinate spaces. So you mentioned in your little intro into what you wanted to talk about that. You wanted to delve into uh, how you can share sort of large blocks of code really between the two platforms, and then obviously that makes it much easier to get into either of those platforms if you're coming from the other one. So, do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, well, this goes back to something we were talking about sort of at the beginning of the discussion, where uh, except for UIKit and AppKit, most of the frameworks on the two platforms are the same. So any code that's only using, you know, non-UI code that's using non-UI frameworks can generally be shared. Of course, this sort of depends on you architecting your code in a good way. You should follow good model view controller or MVVM or or whatever architecture it is that that you like. These all sort of accomplish the same goal, but the less code you have in, in the UI part of your app, the more code you can share. So um, another th- another thing that I think is important to avoid is massive view controller because if you think about it, UI view controller is a UI kit class, uh, and so you know keep as much code as you want as you can out of your view controller so that it, that it's portable. Basically, my rule of thumb is any code that you want to share, any any specific source file that you want to share, should not import UI kit and should not import app kit as long as it's only importing frameworks that are shared on both platforms you're mostly going to be good and of course there are cases where you just can't quite do this and you 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 need you know some small platform specific stuff and for that we have these target conditional macros so you can say pound if target os iphone do such and such else you know do something slightly different on the mac so between architecting your code well and and separating out the the non-ui stuff on its own and then using those target conditionals where you absolutely have to you can actually share pretty big chunks of code Um, i think this situation has gotten even better now that uh, ios supports frameworks which os 10 has supported forever Um, now that both platforms support frameworks you can put all the code you want to share in a framework uh, and and then you know it's sort of a library and you can just use it on both platforms 
Right, Andrew, I mean, that was great, but I'm afraid that's all the time we have. You definitely provided a good insight into OS X development there. I know you've inspired many of our listeners to give it a shot, especially given we've now got a ton of great OS X uh, tutorials on the site. But before we move on to Jake's topic, we're just going to take a short break and hear about this episode's sponsor. Hired is the platform for the best iOS developer jobs. Candidates registered with Hired receive an average of five offers on the platform, all from a single application. Companies looking to hire include Facebook, Uber and Stripe. With Hired, you get job offers and salary and or equity before you interview, so you don't have to waste your time interviewing for jobs you might not end up wanting. And of course, it's totally free to use. Plus for you, our listeners, you will receive a $2,000 bonus from Hired if you find a job through their platform. Just for signing up using the show's exclusive link, hired.com forward slash Ray. Thanks again to Hired for sponsoring this episode of the RayWendlick.com podcast. Okay, Jake, we're 20 minutes on the timer. The mic's all yours. Yeah, so I have made some, in the last two months, I've made some big lifestyle changes in terms of how I work. And it's made a, I've had a dramatic improvement in how much uh, my productivity, how much work I'm getting done and just how difficult it feels to get that work done. So I wanted to kind of share some of my experiences. I, I work from home, or at least I have until recently, um, for a long time. I have, you know, a home office, but I also have a wife and two kids. My kids are five years old. They're twin boys. And I had this ideal in my head that I wanted to be available to them, work from home and, you know, go to their functions and, and, you know, have this lifestyle that's kind of more family friendly than kind of the corporate lifestyle of going into work, working, you know, 60 to 80 hours a week and never, never being around. Um, and so for a long time, I have hesitated to get an office, but in the last year or so, I found it very difficult to get enough work done. And the, the age of my kids now is they're not old enough to understand that they shouldn't interrupt me, but they're old enough to come in and interrupt me when they were little, little kids, you know, they couldn't do that, but now they're old enough that they, you know, they want to come in and show me the things they've built with Legos and have me help them build other things with Legos and they don't really understand. And I don't really have the heart to be like, you know, get out of here kids. Um, and so kind of some things changed and I thought, you know, I should try getting an office. So I, I rented an office. It's about uh, five miles away. And every day I ride my bike, uh, into my office. So I, it's like a 25 minute ride. But when I get in, it's not a very hard ride. It's mostly downhill on the way in. When I get in, you know, I've, I've exercised a little bit. My blood's pumping. I have this secure space that no one can penetrate. And that's made a big difference. I, I am getting more hours of work in and the hours that I do have are a lot more productive. My wife called me the other day. It was kind of dramatic. Uh, she called me and she needed to ask me a question. And I could hear, you know, the boys in the background, they were fighting, which they do not all the time, but often enough. And I could feel the stress rising as I listened to my kids fight. And I was like, oh, I would be feeling that all day long, <laughs> but because I'm in my office, I'm totally insulated from it. And it, it, it's been good. I've actually been able to spend more time actually with my kids because I get more work done during the day. So when I was working from home, the other thing for me that this created, and this was just, this was just poor like setting boundaries on my part. Certainly, you don't have to get an office to accomplish most of these goals. But um, for me, I would work all the time. And so I'd get up, I'd go to work. You know, I'd work as long as I could till I was tired and then I would take a break and eat lunch or take a break and go to the gym and I'd come, come back and work as much as I could. 
And because of the kind of interruptions and just the stuff of life, at six o'clock when you would normally be done working almost every day, I didn't have enough work done. So I would stop at six and play with the kids and maybe put them to bed. And then at like eight or nine o'clock, I'd go back to work and I'd work till midnight. And this was my life like every single day for the last three or four or five years. And that kind of constant pressure of always having my work right there um, started to get really difficult. And I found that like, say again, since I've been in this office, I get in, I get my work done and I can go home now. For anyone that works at like an office, a regular job, this is not a revelation, but for people that work from home a lot, I mean, you might, you might be experiencing some of the same things if you, if you're working from home. And I think what this has taught me is that you can, I mean, it's not that you have to get an office outside of your house, but it's taught me the importance of like, you do need to set up boundaries and like working hours. And you really do need to like protect your work time and protect, protect your working time from your family life, and then also protect your family lifetime from your work time. If those things bleed together, it's, it's kind of a bad situation. And I didn't really, I had to live through that to understand that. Like say, so far, that has made a big difference. Um, I don't know. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? I know, and you guys both work from home. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, so before we get into that, like you mentioned that you'd worked remotely for a few years. And I was just wondering if there was any sort of single significant event that that sort of made you step back and realize that you needed to to move away or if it was just like a gradual thing that you've come to realize over a much longer period of time it actually so work got slow I like finished off with some clients and I was not really sure I didn't have enough work to fill up my time and so I started thinking maybe I'm gonna have to go get a full-time job working out of an office and in general for me that's kind of like the last thing I want to do but I started thinking about it and what it would mean in terms of my daily lifestyle. And I realized like the idea of having a, someone else tell me when to be at, in at work and when to go home was appealing because when I was at home, I wouldn't have to be thinking about work. And so just kind of that thought process that I went through kind of when I was contemplating, I might have to go get a full-time job and work out of an office gave me the opportunity to kind of reevaluate, you know, maybe some of the things about working in an office that I thought I didn't want. Maybe they're actually, you know, things I do want. And and now you've been in the office for for a while, like the does the offset like does the cost of renting that space yourself does that offset sort of the benefits you gain from from moving your yeah. your job you know out of your basement or wherever and into this dedicated space? Yeah, and that was one of the things. But part of the reason I waited as long as I did to try this was because I wanted to like say be accessible to my family. But the other side of that coin was I didn't want to spend the money. Um, the office I have, it's like 400 bucks a month. So it's not a ton of money. Um, and yeah, the increase in productivity more than, I, I mean, I'm like, I, I feel like I'm getting twice as much work done. Um, so yeah. And, and I suppose as well, I mean, what, one of the attractions for me working remotely was, you know, I have a, a six year old, so very similar boat to, to you, Jake, but I actually really like being able to, you know, if she's got a pageant at school or, you know, something like that, and, and it's usually during the day, that I can just, you know, her school's like five-minute walk from our house. So I can just lock up, go and, you know, watch whatever it is that she's doing, spend some time with her, and then come back and pick up where I was. Whereas sort of my wife, she works in Manchester, which is like a 35-mile commute. So for her, it's, you know, if she wants to do that, then she either has to take sort of the morning off work or a full day off work, and it's a much bigger impact. Um, so I think with you being in that office and with it only being a short distance away and you still being your own boss, 
you still get some of the benefits of working from home without actually working from home. It's more deliberate now though, right? Like before it was like my wife would come home and maybe she'd be late for something. And so I'd, I'd stop what I was doing and I'd help get the kids dressed or whatever. Like that kind of, those kind of little things were coming up constantly. And I liked being available for, to help, but it, it was to a, to a level where it, it was, it was having a significant impact, negative impact on my productivity. And it was stuff where it was like, it's just kind of like you get lazy as a human being. Right. And so it's, it, if, if you don't set really clear boundaries for yourself and for others, it's easy to just kind of, just kind of flow into whateverness. <laughs> I don't know if, do you know what I mean? Well, I think, I think you mentioned it there, sort of setting boundaries, not only for yourself, but for others. I mean, that was a sort of a, one of the bigger parts for me. Like when I, when I left sort of office life after 13 years and, and went to work from home, I sort of knew that if I didn't maintain the sort of routine that I already have, you know, eight, working eight till five, um, that I would probably just slip into, you know, get getting up sort of midday, you know, doing a bit of work in a dressing gown, you know, playing a bit of Xbox, whatever. Um, so I, I sort of kept that same routine that I'd had for 13 years. But what really struck me was it, how other people react to you working from home. So, you know, I'd get people just dropping in, you know, unannounced. Yeah, and and expecting like to you know stop for a, a chat and a, and a cup of tea, or I'd get a phone call saying like my uh, brother and sister in law he's a fireman and he works um, odd shifts, and if there was a you know if he was stuck on a, a call out um, and uh, my sister in law had to go off to work, they would ring me and say you know can you come around and look after the kids? It's like well no because I'm at work, yeah. you know like no you're at home. It's like well no because you if I was still in the office. You won't be ringing me up and saying, can you come and look at the kids? And it's like, people have a completely different perspective. And yeah. and it was like training those people to accept that even just because you sat in your house, you know, yeah. you still have a job to do. You still have the same number of hours, if not more, to put in. You know, you still have responsibilities and stuff. And uh, so that was, for me, that was a bigger part. And I, again, I, I guess by having your own space, you're removing that temptation of other people just to drop by and, you know, for a chat and a cup of tea. Yeah. And it's a combination of other people plus myself, right? Like, um, another thing, um, another thing that I've done is that I started tracking my hours. So a lot of the work that I did un until recently was fixed bid. So I'd go in, somebody would say, here's the amount of work I need done. You know, I need this app built and we'd go through and kind of wireframe it and spec it out. And then I'd give them a fixed bid and I'd say, I'll do this for X, uh, you know, amount of money. And so for me, tracking my hours wasn't, I, it, how much I got paid didn't, wasn't connected to how, if, whether or not I tracked the hours, right? Obviously the quicker I could do the job, the more I got paid per hour, but whether I tracked that or not, uh, it wasn't crucial. Um, but I started tracking some of that anyway, and I've ended up with more hourly gigs. And so obviously in that case, I have to track it. And I found by tracking it, that has also helped me kind of shift and be more critical of myself. And now I'm spending my time because one of the things I would do when I was at home was I'd be kind of working on something, but because I didn't have to time track it, like I'd be like watching TV at the same time or something like that. Thinking, oh, I can, I can, this, this can work. You know what I mean? I can do both of these things at the same time. And since I've been tracking my hours, I realized you can do it, but you're like half, you're half as productive. And again, this is probably for probably most people they are like, well, duh, obviously. But for me, kind of not having come from like your situation, Mick, where you were working full time at a job and then you shift to working at home where you kind of already have 
kind of a routine and a standard of work where that just kind of carries over as, lo as long as you don't let it go, right? For me, I was kind of coming from going to college and just kind of not having the same kind of time constraints to, I mean, I had a job right before, but I'd only had it for a little while. Anyway, like working from home was this kind of weird thing. And I grew up that way too. My dad was self-employed and so he worked from home. And anyway, just not having the same level of professional discipline, I think, and then kind of making the shift and implementing some tactics to kind of increase that level of discipline. I realize, like I've been, I've just been, I've been kind of doing things in a way that's just kind of inferior to how I could do them. I don't know. I don't know, Andrew, you work from home too, Andrew. What is, what, what are your kind of take on it? Yeah, I, I work from home and I, uh, I've, I've worked from home for about five years, but before that had sort of a regular, you know, eight to five office job. And, uh, and I, and I actually, you know, left that job partly because I wanted to work from home, but, but I sort of think that the big, big reason I wanted to work from home is that I wanted to be in control of my time. You know, I wanted to have discretion over my schedule and when I was spending time on things and, you know, exactly what I was doing. And, um, I don't think that necessarily really means you need to work from home, home. It just, uh, it, it, it means, you know, you, you need to be in control. And along with that, I think, uh, comes some responsibility to make sure that you're, you're also spending your time productively and wisely when you're, when you're supposed to be working all the things we've talked about. Seems to me, I've never had a, an outside office like you just got, but it seems to me like, um, having that may actually help you, uh, you know, have better discretion over your time because you don't have the interruptions and the temptations that come with with being at home what is the space that you rent is it a shared space no so i started out doing like a co-working space um but it was too far away it was like a half an hour 45 minutes to get to it and i just never never used it and so what i've got now is just a single office inside of a larger office building and i'm like I'm subleasing it from somebody who's subleasing it from the people who own the building. You know what I mean? I'm like three tiers down from the people who actually own the building. Well, cause I was, I was just curious about the social aspect because, you know, even though I work from home and, and maybe, you know, for six hours of the day, uh, I am here by myself. There are parts in the morning where I'm at work, you know, and if, if my wife, uh, if she's on a later shift, She'll be here for a couple of hours in the morning before she heads off to work at 11 or 12. And then, you know, Evie's here sort of from four o'clock onwards until she goes to bed. Because I was like, you, I kind of break off late afternoon to pick her up and then might go back to work. Well, more often than not go back to work in the evening for an hour or two. Um, so I still have some social interaction uh, that is outside of, you know, Slack or Twitter or whatever. And... I mean, that would be my only worry into going into a non sort of shared space rented area is that, um, you know, you're almost in isolation. Yeah. And I, I mean, I do, I am like, it would be nice if I was in an office and like the three or four other offices next to me were other developers writing code, that would be better. Um, but so, yeah, like if I could, in fact, that was kind of what I was looking for in terms of the co-working space. I was, my first thought was like, I want to work around other people developers but if not developers other people who are like self-employed creative building their own business type of people because um, i i think i would find that very motivating um but like i say that the place that i went to it's very it was a very cool space and there was a lot of cool people working out of it but it just took too long to get there though so i believe as well that not only sort of 
when you moved into this space, it's it's had an impact. Or it's just that that's had an impact on your work. I believe you've you've done some sort of time management or productivity management change as well. I kind of mentioned I've been tracking my time a lot better. So par- partly like the tracking and kind of also planning. So I'll look at my week and I'll say how much time do I want to spend with each client, and I'll try and work that out ahead of time. And then I actually track how I do, and then the end of the week, I kind of compare. So I'm much more on top of that. But beyond that, I started using the the Pomodoro method, um, which is, I think probably a lot of developers have heard of this, but you basically, you get like a, an egg timer or like a kitchen timer and you work for 25 minutes with no distractions. And then you take a five minute break and then you do that like four or five times. And then you start taking longer breaks uh, as, as you get into like six, seven, eight times. But the, the idea is that each, you know, each 30 minutes chunk of your day is broken up into 25 minutes of very focused work and five minutes of break. And I, I'd heard of this thing and I'd got like a little app on my, on my Mac and I started doing it that way. And then I started reading a little more about it. And the guy that kind of thought it up, one of the things he said is that not only is the 25 minutes of focused work important, but the five minute break is just as important. And so even if you're kind of on a roll, and I'm not perfect at this yet, but even if you're on a roll, you should stop and take that break because it's, it, it helps you maintain kind of your level of focus and work throughout the day if you, if you don't skip your breaks. And the other thing he said was you need to get a physical timer. Don't, don't use a software program or something else to do it because the act of actually picking up a timer and twisting it and then hearing the tick, 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 it reinforces it's kind of a ritual and it like kind of primes your subconscious mind. It reinforces this activity. Like for the next 25 minutes, I'm going to be super focused. So I've been doing that for two or three weeks and I've, I've been really happy with it. Um, it's, it's again, it's helped me be more productive. I'm more focused. I get more work done. The, the day kind of goes by faster because I'm kind of in the zone and then I get out of the zone and then I get back into the zone. It's helped me not have, and again, this is related. I'm, you know, I'm work, I'm exercising more. Like when I go to lunch, I have to ride my bike over and get a sandwich or whatever. And that has helped. So, I mean, I'm doing like four or five things all at once and I'm not sure, you know, which thing to attribute to kind of feeling better overall. But like the the bottom line for me is that I'm getting more work done and it actually feels easier. And I feel like all these things are helping in their own little way. And so if, if you haven't ever tried the Pomodoro method, I would, I would encourage anybody to give it a shot. I don't think it's necessarily for everybody, but it's definitely helped me. I think that's one of the things that I that, that that's like the one piece that's missing from from my working from home routine, if you like, is the discipline to take a break. Uh, and my wife goes off on me all the time about this. And you know, quite often I will say, look at you know, I'll look at the clock on on the desktop, and it'll be like half twelve, and I think, okay, five more minutes, and then I'll go grab a sandwich. And then the next time I look, it's quarter two. And yeah. I'm like, well, I'm kind of not hungry now. <laughs> like I've yeah. worked through lunch, so I'll just carry on. Um, you know, or I'll go downstairs, you know, back, you know, grab a bag of crisps, I'll make a quick sandwich and then take it back up and carry on working. And I'm not really disciplined around sort of taking fixed length breaks and making sure that I do stick to that. But I actually think that also stems back from when I was working in an office because when I was, like the expectation um, around the work that we were doing and sort of the reality around how quickly we could do it and the perception of sort of higher management around how long it took meant that you almost felt guilty if you took a break. So you kind of got into the routine of never taking a break. And I think that's probably just carried carried forward when I started working from home. So that's one area that I really need to, to look to improve. 
But I've um, I've just noticed, lads, that we are out of time for this episode. So we're just going to wrap it up there. Thanks again for joining us, Andrew. Thank you. Now, if you have any feedback or comments on the podcast, then please do get in contact via podcast at raywendlick.com. And don't forget to leave your reviews on iTunes because they do really make a big difference to us and keep us all motivated to keep putting these out every other week. Uh, We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you all next time. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWendlick.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.